love riding my bike. I love running. I don't care what they think about it. I love it. At that point, when I knew I was going to win, chills just went up and down my entire body. I don't believe there are any good or bad foods. Food is food. I still feel so passionate about getting that record that I'm like, I'm just going to do it. As an athlete, I was like, what's my story or what's your story? What can you learn from it? And what can you teach people? Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Alyssa Gadeski. I am here with Haley Chura. And Haley, I have to say, I've missed you. It's like we go week after week talking to each other on Mondays. And we had the week, quote, off last week to allow me to recover from a 36-hour adventure race I was doing, which was probably one of the best decisions we've made in the year of podcasting so far. But um. I missed you. So I'm excited to catch up and kind of, yeah, check in, tell you all about the race, see what's been happening in these last couple of weeks for you. Alyssa, I'm excited to hear about it. And I have to say, I had at least one message last week of someone being like, what? I thought I was going to be able to hear about Alyssa's race. I feel like I've been conned, but I was like, no, you weren't conned. Just, it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. We want her to be totally coherent coherent when she is telling us about her adventure race. You did it over Memorial Day weekend. You've had a little bit of time to reflect and process. So tell me, how are you? I mean, it looked, okay, My, I, I watched, I saw some of your social media posts. My initial reaction was she looked so cold. <laughs> Was that correct? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so Memorial Day weekend in the Northeast, I, you know, it's not shocking to me that like weather can be unpredictable. I remember, I think it was 2013. I did uh, my own little like training camp in like Placid over Memorial Day weekend and I got snow and it was like super, super cold. I like couldn't even swim in the lake really. And so, you know, unpredictability in the weather in the Northeast-ish area, mid-Atlantic even, is like possible for, you You just don't always know what you're going to get. But when we signed up for an, a 36-hour adventure race Memorial Day weekend, I have to say, you know, front of my mind was like Memorial Day, like cookouts, barbecues, it'll be nice, it'll be summer, right? And so even after Matt and I did the nine hour adventure race in January and we were like, man, that was so cold. But like the next one's in Memorial day, it'll be warm. Right. And then we're watching the forecast the week of the race, I guess, two weeks ago. And all of a sudden it's like, man, this storm is heading straight for the East coast, heading straight for like Pennsylvania, New York area. And like, it's apparently bringing with it tons and tons of rain and cold weather. And so Basically, I went from, you know, five days out, seven days out planning to be wearing shorts and a t-shirt or like, you know, I was actually going to wear um, like a arrow top. I felt like when I did my six day running event a couple years ago, I wore an arrow top and I found that to be like super functional for when you have a big pack on and you have pockets and it's like comfortable and cooling. Right. So that was like my plan. And I was going to be like triathlete secret clothing wear, right? For the, for the hot race that I was getting ready for. And then we're looking at the weather and I'm like, man, this is, I, I, this is not going to go as, as we had hoped. So, um, the forecast and what it ended up being, luckily the bulk of the rain, Haley, the race was starting on Saturday. The bulk of the rain came through Friday, but that did set us up for a very, very wet weekend with scattered showers and like 40 degree temps. It might've been in the fifties at times, but 
that's cold. That's cold when you're going to be really wet. Um, it's cold when you have like limited clothing options, um, to wear. And so I panicked, like basically panic packed. And I was just like, well, I don't know exactly what to do. So I'm just going to bring everything. And then like, I looked at Matt's clothes pile and it was like, mine was like, 10 feet high stack that I was trying to like fit in our gear bin. Right. And his is like three things. And I was like, you need this, you need this. You need. I was like panic ordering him like rain pants, like all of these things. I was like, Oh my God, we're going to be so cold. Um, and luckily it was the right move to bring everything because I think we ended up going through all the clothes we had at one point or another and just being able to like have some refreshes of clothes was, was helpful. But, um, all I'm trying to think about how to like best tell people about the race. So, um, 36 hours, it was called the two rivers adventure race put on by rootstock racing in the endless mountains of Pennsylvania. I guess that sounds so nice, right? So picturesque and so like welcoming. Um, and what happens with adventure racing is you have different segments of different activities. And so this was going to have like six, I guess. So stage one was a trek. Stage two was a bike stage three. Again, a trek then a bike, then a trek and a pack raft paddle section. And then you finished off with a bike. So before the race, you get like kind of the high level details of all of this to help you with planning. Um, the race also tells you, you get like a, a one bin. So it's, it's self-supported in the sense that, you know, there's no like aid stations throughout the course, but there are TAs, um, and like transition areas and, um, where you, the race will kind of transport your gear bin to various ones. Not everyone. So like not every TA will have your gear bin, but they tell you ahead of time, which ones will. And they kind of give you a range of time that that segment will take. So you can be like, okay, we're going to be going 12 hours without access to our gear bin. So that means like we need to be starting with 12 hours of food, right? Like things like that. Um, and so we did all of that planning pretty intensely. It's like a a big planning process <laughs> to, to plan for 36 hours. You know, it's a lot to, when you think about laying out like a 10 hour Ironman day and then yeah, laying out 36 hours of things was like pretty intense. Um, but we did all that planning. We were ready to go. We had our gear bin and, um, you know, it was cold. <laughs> it was just cold. And Haley, that first segment. So it was interesting. One of the questions I had going into it with adventure racing was like, um, because when we did that first race, there were like COVID staggering of the start. So I was like, now that some of the precautions have been listed or lifted, how are we going to start an adventure race? Like, does everyone just go? And then I was like, then everyone's just going towards the same point. Like, how does that work? Right. And then you could just like follow people. You don't need navigation. So, um, there was like a prologue that they had to break people up and to kind of just thin out the crowd a little bit for the start. And so that was, I'd equate it to like, as if we had to run, you know, they had three navigational points right around the start area. And basically your team was supposed to go get those as fast as you could come back, get your real map and start. So that did spread people out. So it wasn't, you know, a couple hundred people all going towards the same place at the start. Um, and then in that first truck section, Haley was this, you know, Abby and Brent of rootstock racing, they'll use the word spectacular a lot when they talk about the segments of their races. And I have since learned now being a veteran of some rootstock racing, um, events that if they use the word spectacular, it probably means you're going to get wet. And so in that first section, we were <laughs> traveling 
uh, downstream, I think. Yeah, downstream. I don't think we were, yeah, downstream. I think I would have noticed if we were going upstream. But um, for like 8K to find the checkpoints that were basically in the riverbed or right alongside of it. And that was one of the most memorable sections of the race for sure. But it was just, it was definitely really wet on that day. And you can imagine like when the air temperatures in the forties and the water temperature I was probably in the fifties, maybe the sixties in some segments, like there were times for sure when I was like, the water feels a lot warmer than the air to me. And so like that was helping me thaw my toes out almost. Um, there was one part where I slipped in and definitely went for a swim, Haley. So that was exciting. And I, I just remember slipping in breaststroking and being like, looking up at Matt, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is not good. Cause we still had a ways to go before we could get to dry clothing. And I got out and he just looked at me and was like, what do we do? <laughs> like, how, how are you? And I was like, I'm really cold, but we have to keep moving. And so I put on what gear I did have at that time. Um, I had these really cool things, Haley, that are called blegamits and they're like big, they look like oven mitts, but they're like made of neoprene, like wetsuit no. material. And they're, it's like a wetsuit mitt for your hand. And so it does, it warms up your hands really, like really well. So I had one on and then Matt would wear the other one. And then we each had one to like alternate between our hands to keep our hands warm. Um, and you know, you would think that as much as I say all this, like we were just cold and miserable, but actually morale was pretty high. Um, and we were doing well, we were finding the points and I would say like all things told we were, you know, we were pretty happy about that. Um, and so that's, that's probably like the, the section of the race that I think Matt and I did the best on. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it the most because the rest of the race <laughs> from there was, a lesson in the learning curve that is still ahead of us for adventure racing. And, you know, the, the best way to talk about it is like Haley, when, you know, we got into triathlon and I think, um, you probably had a similar mindset is like stuff we tell our athletes is, you know, you have your early days where like, if you're really trying to get good, like one of the good things you can do is to race a lot, right? Race small races, race short races, race long races, race anything to get more racing experience so that you start to learn things that you you just can't learn in training. And especially with adventure racing, because you can train the fitness. Like Matt and I felt quite fit the whole time, but we definitely had just to be in the race in that moment to experience what it feels like to be in the middle of the woods when it's 1am, you haven't slept, you still have another, you know, 20 hours or whatever of racing ahead of you. And like, one of your teammates is like, clearly not making, you know, like Matt's like not really making as much sense when he's telling me what we're direction we're going in anymore. Like, what do you do? Right? Like what, what's your plan of attack? And it's really cold, right? So things like that are just experiences that, you know, maybe it's like learning by feeling or learning whatever, but it's like, those are the experiences you have to experience to be like, oh, like this could happen and this could be something I should be prepared for. So I feel like Matt and I missed the boat on a lot of adventure racing prep that you can really only get through adventure racing. So in that respect, that was good, right? We didn't like leave a lot of prep that we could have prepped for undone. Um, but it was, it was tough like to be out there and be like, oh, we didn't see this coming. Like, how do we just, you know, handle this? And I think, um, 
you know, we, we ultimately finished second in our division for the co-ed two person team, which we were proud of that we managed to pull that off. But, you know, I, I do think him and I both feel like we, we left a lot out on the course, you know, like there was a lot of racing that we didn't do because we, we kind of packed it in, in some places a little early. Um, and so we're excited to race in the future again. Um, you know, I think we want to try some other distances other than 36 hours, like maybe 24 might feel a little bit better for the, you know, as we still have this big learning curve ahead of us. Um, because we just, you know, I think I, I personally underestimated the value of patience in adventure racing. Um, and part of that I think definitely comes because even in Ironman racing, like you have to be patient, but you're still going hard mm-hmm. the duration of the time, you know? Um, but this is like different. This is just a lot longer. And so patience really, I think comes into play and making smart choices, using your head, making sure you're really prepared for like the next, um, kind of segment is like way more important than I, I had hoped, I guess. I kind of thought we could just like, yeah, rely on fitness and go through some of it, but that wasn't the case. Um, it was really fun though, Haley. I have two fun tid, well, three fun tidbits because I do want to touch on um, a question that came into the mailbag about the race specifically. And Taryn saw some of my pictures on Instagram from the race, and she was asking about the big iPad-looking thing that was on Matt's bike during the biking. Um, and Taryn, that is actually a map board. So the opposite of an iPad, it's like not technology at all. It's literally like this mount you put on your bike handle. Um, bike handlebars. And then it has like a flat board. It's like a very intricate design because there's like a lot of nuances to it, but basically then it's a sleeve to keep the map dry while you're riding. And then it also like spins around, I guess. And so as you're biking, you can kind of like orient the map to be like oriented how you want to be kind of perceiving the the direction ahead of you. Um, so that was, but it's, yeah, it's like giant on the handlebars, which is um, why it's Matt's responsibility to ride with that. So Taryn, thanks for that question. Um, and then Haley there, as I was thinking about it and telling, you know, I wanted to, um, tell a couple tidbits and, uh, one thing I would definitely have changed. Like if I could have gone back in time and done it again, I would have, and I thought about this and I, I regret not bringing it. My swim run wetsuit. We talked about this. We did. Yes, (laughs) I should have really brought my swim run wetsuit and worn that for the first segment because if I had that as my base layer, I think I would have been like happy as a clam, not as worried about getting wet, and like it just would have kept my core really, really warm. So I do think swim run wetsuit, like the full wetsuit, I think would have been too much, but swim run wetsuit would have been clutch for that first segment for sure. Um, I do think they can market them to adventure racers because I think there there can be a lot of like wet times. And then I remembered, and I think she talked about this on our podcast with Rhea Coble when she talked about Eco Challenge. Um, did she talk about eating the noon tabs to stay awake? Was that on the podcast or did I hear that somewhere else? I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. So somewhere I remember, I think I might've read that in one of her posts that she, that her team in the later stages of Eco Challenge, the five-day race, where they were like infinitely more tired than Matt and I they were using noon tabs and just like chewing them straight to stay awake and desperate times Haley in that last 12 hours. I was like, Hey Matt, want some noon? And he's like, yeah. And then I like just broke a tab, gave him half of a noon energy and I ate half the noon energy. And I have to say the, like when that hits your mouth, I really think it just, 
um, accelerates the energy factor because I would a hundred percent do that part again. Um, when I'm like feeling a little tired. So, um, there was that. And then unexpected endorsements for two of our podcast sponsors, Orca, (laughs) if you need to swim, swim, run wetsuit, just for general warmth, if you're find yourself trucking through a river and then noon tablets, it's not just for hydration. It can also help keep you awake. (laughs) Yes. And so Haley, just sorry, on my little checklist of things I do want to talk about with the race is that just a reminder to any listeners out there who have been interested in adventure racing and, um, you know, hearing these stories have piqued your interest more to look into it. Um, the two rivers 36 hour was like probably not your typical entry level adventure race. Um, there are definitely more beginner friendly options out there that don't involve pack rafting that don't involve sleep deprivation, you know, that don't involve a lot of that, um, stuff and would be a great way to kind of dip your toes in. And I talked to Abby from rootstock racing to get, um, you know, where, what you should look at if that's you, if you are looking for more of a beginner friendly option. And there is the, um, the buff Betty race, which is in, I believe, Virginia. And, um, that one I think is coming up in September. And then there's also the unbridled women's adventure race, which I think is at the end of this month, but could be something to look into for the future. Um, both beginner friendly options would be really fun events for you to do. Rootstock might bring back its women's only race in 2022. And also there is like all kind of, uh, like USAT, there is a USARA. So U S adventure racing association. Um, you can go to that website. They have a calendar and they have an email and stuff like that. So, um, you can always get in touch with them if you have questions, but just to, you know, I do think, especially now after experiencing the 36 hour stepping stones are probably a good thing in adventure racing to go like, you know, not maybe the full leap like Matt and I did, but we had fun. It was so good, Haley, to get to see some of our friends. Um, I think that was definitely just the highlight of the weekend was to like race again and to just see people again, that again, that like, you know, through racing and, um, yeah, I've, I, I knew I missed that, but I missed it more than I thought I did. Well, congratulations. I'm so glad you've had a chance to catch up on some sleep and get that experience. Cause like you said, there's only one way to get it, but it's good to know you had the fitness to do it. I mean, that has to make you feel kind of good. And then it is just working on that experience and, and figuring out what to pack and everything. But it definitely sounds like it li- I don't know the actual like definition of the word spectacular. I might have to like look that up, but it I mean, it doesn't sound like they were wrong. It sounds like it was, it wasn't necessarily like the spectacular, like vistas that I might, you know, when I picture the word spectacular, but I mean, it I, again, a spectacular might have been the proper descriptive word. So, um, congratulations. Thanks, Haley. Yeah, that's true. I think, I think I might start throwing in spectacular to some of my athlete, uh, feedback and emails and things like that. Just reminding them of spectacular things that are to come for them. Um, and Haley, one thing too, I did get a question, um, that I just wanted to, to answer before it leaves my mind with the freshness is from Julia and Julia was asking, like, she was kind of watching training on Strava, but then she saw I did an adventure race and she was like, wait, you know, are you racing Ironman? Are you not racing Ironman? What are you doing? And then I said, yeah, I'm, I'm planning to go to Coeur d'Alene and race. And she asked about the balance between adventure racing and Ironman and how to balance it all. And, 
Um, one thing I, I do, I will say is initially this race had been planned for last Memorial Day weekend, right? Memorial Day of 2020, when I would be going into an FKT attempt for um, the Adirondack High Peaks a couple months later. So it actually like, you know, the training would have aligned pretty well had it all happened last year as planned, postponed a year. I was still like, eh, my initial plan for Ironman was like Placid and Mont Tremblant. And so I was like, I can do the adventure race at the end of May and be Ironman fit by the end of July. And Haley, as you know, they added Coeur d'Alene to our pro schedule, like pretty late in, in the spring here. Um, so when that happened and then I was looking, you know, Tremblant's still a question mark. I was changing my schedule. So then I was like, oh man, now I'm racing Ironman a month sooner than I thought backing up to this adventure race. Like not ideal. Um, I think for depending on your goals with Ironman, absolutely fitness could match up and you can do all of the things, um, and do them pretty well. But you know, it will be interesting to see in Coeur d'Alene how, uh, how I do run because I do, you know, this, this definitely took a couple of weeks of Ironman training out of my run, particularly prep, um, for that race. So, um, you know, that said, it was nice to have a break from my typical Ironman <laughs> training weekend. And I do think it was really nice to see friends at the race and probably made me like, you know, an endorphin boost in that sense. And so I don't know, will it balance out? You guys will all get to follow along and find out. Oh, I'm so glad we get to follow along on your adventures. And I think it is, it's, it's a strange year and doing things in a non-traditional way. If there's a time to do it, I think it is now. So I'm, I'm excited to see how you do. I bet, I bet, I bet there's some like, I bet there's some lessons from adventure racing that definitely carry over. Cause like you said, the patience part, like maybe you don't have to, hopefully you don't have to worry as much about sleep deprivation <laughs> in <laughs> Ironman. Um, I mean, there's a 17 hour limit, but hopefully you're not going into it sleep deprived. Um, but you know, there's again, decision-making problem solving that comes along in an Ironman race as well. So, um, usually no trekking in creeks, but I, you know, it could be a big rainstorm or something. You never know. You never Any, know. Anything is possible. That is the I know, motto I have seen of pictures. Iron Man. I think Ironman Maryland that year had that like flash flood and people were like upped in cock yes. deep water, right? So like I'll be like, Psh. You guys, I think I'm, I'm ready for that. that too. Yeah, You're right. I think there have been some like that. Usually, and I mean, not too many cold Ironmans, but I mean, I've done some rainy ones. And Coeur d'Alene, I mean, the water could be cold. I hope it's cold, but um, it <laughs> but it's uh, probably yeah, probably not quite that extreme. But you know, good good experience. But I have a little bit of news that I wanted to share. You share, um, yeah. So I got an email from past, I'm one of our past podcast guests, Julie MT Walker. She's from the Atlanta Tri Sisters. And, um, if you remember, we interviewed Julie about a year ago first, when she had won the spirit of multi-sport award from USA triathlon. And then we brought Julie and then her two ride or die Tri Sisters, uh, Dr. Deborah Carlton and Melanie Reed. The, the three of them are the board of the Atlanta Tri Sisters. And we had them on earlier this year to talk about all the exciting things happening with the Atlanta Tri Sisters this year. And, and Julie sent me a note letting me know that 
Deborah actually just became a USA triathlon level one race director. And Julie thinks that Deborah might be only the second black woman to get a USAT race director certification. And she said the first she thought was Takima Dorsey, who we've also had on the podcast. She's the CEO of the International Association of Black Triathletes. And Julie is working to confirm that stat. So if anyone has information on the history of black women race directors in USA triathlon, definitely feel free to let us know. I think Julie is hoping to add her name to that list in the coming weeks. So we wish her luck for that. And um, the, to celebrate Deborah becoming a race director, she wasted no time. She actually directed her very first race this past weekend at the Atlanta Tri-Sisters inaugural triathlon. It was on Sunday. They did a 200-yard pool swim, 5.5-mile bike, and a one-mile run. It was, Alyssa, in a secret location. I don't know exactly where it was. They wanted to keep the crowds down to a minimum follow strict COVID precautions, very small numbers, but hopefully it was a success. I haven't actually heard like I'll, if I'm sure I'll, I'll reach out to Julie and get like, make sure it's a success, but I'm pretty confident. I mean, we talked to these women. I don't think these women do things that are unsuccessful. Um, and, but you know, hopefully this will be a bigger event in the future and, you know, we'll be able to go to, I mean, you know, I love racing in Atlanta. I'd love to go to Atlanta and, you know, spectate or race or volunteer, but congratulations. Congratulations to Deborah on that great certification. Congratulations to, you know, Julie and all the Atlanta Tri-Sisters, all the athletes who raced this weekend and to that group for continuing their mission. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of fun to, to follow up with folks and see how, how things are progressing. And, um, yeah, it's super, super fun news. So congratulations to them. Yeah. Congratulations, Julian. Thank you for sending that update because we do love the little check-ins and to follow along with people, um, you know, through, through the years, I guess now we can say. Yeah, of course. And, uh, a little bit of news closer to home, kind of, I guess. No, I don't know. I, it's a virtual home. Um, the feisty triathlon, our home at live feisty livefeisty.com has feisty cycling kits. They're made by Orca and they're available in the feisty shop at livefeisty.com through Tuesday, June 15th. So when this airs, you'll have a few days to get your order. in if you want, you just head to livefeisty.com. There's, you'll see the shop tab right at the top and click on that. And you can scroll down see those cycling kits. If you need a fresh kit for the summer. And Haley, I talked through a couple mailbag questions in the race recap a little bit, but we did have another mailbag question come in from Sarah. And, um, if you have mailbag questions out there, listeners, send them into ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com and we'll take a stab at them. And, uh, the question from Sarah, this is great as we are getting prepped for some racing traveling ahead of us. And Sarah wants to know, um, her and her husband have nice road bikes. They're looking to bring on the airplanes for summer adventures. So what are pros and cons of different kinds of bike boxes? What do we use or recommend tips for flying with a bike? Uh, we all love our precious bicycles. So what are our tips for getting them to the destination safe and sound? And Haley, what do you use for your, for traveling? So I use a bike and helium bag, which I will say I've had very good luck with it, keeping my bike safe and sound. I, it has really good wheels. So it's very, it's pretty easy to navigate through an airport. Cause I often do travel by myself. I will say if I were in the market now for a new bike bag, uh, I would go with something lighter. So the bike and bag is actually fairly heavy and, um, 
now a lot of the airlines, I think if you can keep your bike bag under 50 pounds, you'll be charged as a normal bag. So I would suggest, especially with road bikes, I mean, that those are typically lighter than triathlon bikes. And so I would probably do something with like fewer wheels, not quite as much of an internal frame. Um, I don't know. I haven't looked at specific brands, but I would do a lighter bag because you'll save a lot of money that way. Yeah. I, I do think a lot has changed in the like last couple of years, especially with bike fees and things like that on airlines. I use the rooster sports hen house bag, um, which is actually two bags. So it's a separate wheel bag from the frame case. And like initially that was a good way to often, you know, before a lot of airlines kind of came down with their fees, you were getting just checking bags, which was really nice. Um, but the like major con of that type of bag is you have to be very well versed in how to break down and put together your bike. Um, there have been tears <laughs> on many occasions as I, you know, and I know how to do it with my eyes closed probably. And it still can be stressful and things like that because just with travel, something gets misplaced, something gets, you know, scattered, who knows. Right. And so you just, you have to be able to, um, break it down pretty small to fit in those bags and then build it back up. Um, so, you know, but I do like flying with that. I am often flying to races by myself and juggling that. Plus my like carry on bag is doable for me. I can do this like stack situation. Um, but I know, I do know there are some types of bike cases out there. Like, and this is another thing you could probably like run the numbers on, I would say with the airline you're flying and those rules and, costs because I have seen people who get, I don't even know what kind it is, but it's like a larger box. That's like, it's like a huge box and it rolls on four wheels and they can fit like two frames in that. Right. So it's like, maybe both, maybe you can get something that's a little larger, but get both bikes and stuff in there. Um, and then with two bikes in the box, it might be heavier. So you might face that fee kind of thing, but again, like run the numbers. Um, the biggest thing I think I've tried, I mean, Haley, remember when I came to visit you in Atlanta that time and I had that like, bag, it was like a, it was like a duffel bag that time. Do you remember that? Really? That, I don't remember. remember. It didn't show up and then they had to bring it to your apartment, right? Oh, yes. I mean, this I is do like remember, really, really long time ago. I remember picking you up yeah. and like, at like in the middle of the night and then we ran the peach. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my bike like magically appeared, but I, for a while was using, I mean, that bike bag was like a duffel bag. Like literally it was like nothing, but like I would just pack it so well that it actually was quite protective, you know? So like, I mean, it was more than a duffel bag, you guys. But so anyway, I would just say, look at the airline that like, especially if you're someone who always flies X, Y, or Z, right? Look at that airline, look at what their things are and then try and like find the best option within that to, because I do think, um, you know, the ones like you said, Haley, that are, are flying, it has bags now, you know, it might be worth it to get something a little lighter and smaller. Um, or if you're on Southwest and it's like $75 to take a bike, then try and put both bikes into one and see how you get right. But just like pat it really well with like, get some pool noodles, cut them up, put them around your bike. Lots okay, of my towels, only thought, lots of padding. Yeah. Yeah. My one thought with putting two bikes in one, I mean, can you still fit it in a rental car? Like, I guess if you have two bike bags, like that's going to be hard to fit in a rental car. Cause that's also something I always have to think about too, is yeah. like making sure you can fit it in the rental car. If assuming you're renting a car on the other end. That but, is the pro of the, the ones that I, the rooster sports bag is that it fits in the tiniest of tiny cars that I have brought it with. Or if so. you're like, 
Ubering and you're like, yeah, this is, yep. I have this much. Luggage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that one has definitely cost me some money and, but it depends on where you are. Some places are like no big deal. And then right. other places are like, that will be an extra hundred dollars. And you're like, okay. And if you're, you know, if, I mean, I think for a lot of people who want to do like a bike vacation, right? Like if you can coordinate bike flights and like shipping the bike out, if you don't need it for super strict training, right? Right up to like an event date and you can be without your bike for five to seven days ahead of the trip, then, you know, shipping it. I know, I mean, I've had my bike lost shipping it too. So, and I've had my bike lost flying it, right? So it's like, eh, either way you're taking a risk and but if you can just get it to that destination and not have to worry about traveling with it, then it is kind of nice too. So, um, you know, Sarah, I don't know if we gave you a hard and fast option, but, um, basically, you know, if nothing else, maybe we have just give you, given you confidence in the fact that flying with bikes is hard <laughs> and it's a lot to consider, but it's worth it. It's worth it when you're there. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, it's very rewarding to the things you can do and see when you have a bike in a new area. I think it's, it's, you know, it is an incredible thing and it's usually worth the money, but budgeting some extra money, budgeting some extra time does usually save you a headache in the, in the long run, but you know, best of luck to you. And I hope you get to go to some fun places. And Haley, this actually isn't a podcast all about Alyssa's adventure racing fun. Uh, we have a really fun interview with this, just giving me more Olympic fever. That is right. Alyssa, there was a ton of racing this past weekend. So following up on your adventure race, there was a ton of racing this past weekend. I think we had Ironman cans over in Australia. We had, um, a lot of racing in Leeds in the UK with the world triathlon series. And, and that's where we're focused for our interview this week, because we're talking to Grace Norman and Grace was the gold medalist at women's in the women's PT four category in Rio. She was the first paratriathlete to win a gold medal in the history of the sport because paratriathlon became an Olympic sport or Paralympic sport in 2016 at the Rio Paralympics. And, she was only 18 years old when she won that gold medal. And she is also a two-time world champion. She currently competes in the PTS5 category, which is an ambulatory class. She's an amputee. And she does compete with a below-the-knee prosthetic on her left leg. And, um, you know, as you said, we kind of have this, this Olympic and Paralympic fever coming up. With The Paralympic Games are supposed to happen in Tokyo August 24th through September 5th, you know, just come just right around the corner and Grace's race, the paratriathlon, which is a sprint distance triathlon. It's supposed to happen on Sunday, August 29th. So I am super psyched to, you know, to watch her race and to see her defend as the reigning gold medalist. And, you know, hopefully we, uh, we have some, you know, fun, exciting racing to watch there, but, um, she did finish third in Leeds this past weekend. So it was her first, it was her first world triathlon Paris series race in a long time. The first one that's happened in a long time. So Grace tells us about that race in Leeds. She tells us about, you know, the COVID precautions. She, she gives us, you know, a really fun recap of the race in Rio, because anytime you get a chance to talk to a gold medalist, it's, it's just so fun it's so amazing. I mean, they aren't, they're not that many people in the world who can say they've done that. So it's such a treat to hear about that and talks about her preparations for Tokyo. We did catch her on her layover on her way back from Leeds back to Indiana. So she was very, very nice to stop in the airport and give us a quick interview. So we wanted to get it to you as quick as possible. Uh, so you can start planning your Olympic and Paralympic 
spectating and cheering plans for this coming summer. So we'll have our conversation with Grace right after the break. The Iron Women podcast is grateful to Zelio Skincare for their continued support of the podcast. I'm always excited when I start pulling out the Zelio Sun Barrier more and more because that's a sure sign races are around the corner. And I'm going to be happier than ever using my Zelio's Race Relief Cold Therapy Muscle Gel because it means I actually got to do an in-person race this year. You can get your own Zelio Sun Barrier Race Relief Shower Products and Chamois Cream for 15% off with the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com. Haley, have you ever been jealous of the elite running or cycling groups who are able to get their blood work done super quickly and efficiently because they have a doctor on staff? Yes, I have been jealous. I have a great primary care physician, but I'll admit, sometimes I'm curious about certain blood markers in between my annual doctor visits. Me too, and that's why I'm excited Inside Tracker is here. Inside Tracker is on-demand blood testing. You pick your plan online, schedule your blood draw appointment locally, and get your results within a few days. My favorite part, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips too. For a limited time, Inside Tracker is offering our listeners 25% off of their entire store. Just go to insidetracker.com slash ironwomen and get started. Hi, Grace. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we want to first congratulate you on your third place podium finish at the World Triathlon Para Series race in Leeds in the UK this past weekend. It looked like a super close race and your blistering fast 17-52 5K run split brought you within four seconds of second place and just 50 seconds behind first. So how do you feel about your race? Uh, yeah, it was definitely a good race. I It was just good to be able to race again, you know, um, at that level, because it had been close to like a year and a half of no racing um, outside the U.S. for myself. Um, and I think most of these ladies that I competed against. Um, so overall, you know, it was just a really good feedback on the race course. Um, the race itself was a really, really difficult um, course, making it just, it, it took everything from me. Um, but overall, I, I am pretty proud of it. You know, it's always hard to get beat the last, um, you know, 10 meters of a race. And that's definitely not how I wanted it to end or not how I thought it would end. Um, but yeah, overall, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, it has to feel good to finish a race and feel like it did take everything from you, right? Because it's like there that leaves not a lot of place for regrets or kind of second-guessing strategy and things like that. So that's always kind of a good thing, at least, as you are digesting the race here, I'm sure. Right, exactly, yeah. And Grace, this was your first World Triathlon para-series race since the Grand Final in Switzerland in September 2019, as you kind of said, like, you, you know, especially outside the U.S., hadn't been racing for 18 months. And in that race, um, you finished there third. So, you know, coming back now racing, did the COVID precautions change your race experience? Um, I mean, a little bit. So in this race, um, particularly, we had to be in what they call a bubble. Um, so we were all put into a host hotel um, and basically not allowed to leave our hotel rooms. Um, we were you know, allowed to do the training we wanted to within our own room, um, which meant pretty much limited to 
uh, biking on a trainer and swim bands if you had them um, and like, you know, dynamics. But other than that, um, like the race itself was the same as everything. We don't have to wear, you know, masks or anything during the race, but, you know, leading up, we have to wear masks, which has become, you know, a, da a daily normal for everyone in the world right now. Um, but I definitely feel like the quarantine bubble um, was a little bit hard to get used to. You know, you're used to doing something, at least, you know, one of the three, two of the three, sometimes all three on the days leading up to the race and to have just being able to, like having to sit in the hotel room was kind of a bit rough for me. Um, but I don't, I don't really think it had any lasting effects on my performance for the race, but that's kind of probably the main difference um, that COVID has taken on racing recently. And we're all very, very excited for this summer and the Tokyo Paralympics that are supposed to be happening in August. And the U.S. Paratriathlon Olympic team, it will be made by discretionary selections. And I believe that team should be announced in early July. So you are the defending gold medalist. And you, I mean, based on this weekend, you clearly appear to be a medal contender. Do you have any early indication of it's likely that you'll make the team? Um, so basically they, they, they go on selection events and discretion. Um, so right now, um, all of the selection events have either been canceled or, um, not put into use because of the course. And so we have one more final selection event, um, in three weeks in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. Um, we'll have our continental championship where they will take that race heavily into account for making their um, selections for the Paralympic team. Um, for me, there are no other athletes within my specific disability sport category for triathlon um, women in the U.S. And so um, as long as they see me as a medal contender, which I am, um, you have to be top, I think, uh, you have to be ranked top nine in the world, um, which I'm currently ranked third and um, top nine in the Paralympic rankings, which I'm currently ranked third. So um, there really isn't, it, it's pretty a, a solid, um, I will make the team, it just has to be announced. <laughs> yeah, I would say that you're checking all the boxes and then some, so that's gotta feel good, but hopefully that announcement will come officially sooner rather than later. Um, and Greg, right. you, you were saying with your category, so you compete in the ambulant class PTS5 category, which is set to compete on Sunday, August 29th. And so you've actually raced the Tokyo course during the test event that happened in 2019. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what you thought of the venue? Uh, yeah, 2019 was actually, um, we actually did not get to race the exact Paralympic course because the water quality was um, too poor on the day of the race. So they actually canceled the swim and made it into a duathlon. Um, and they didn't have us ride the exact bike course or run the exact run course, um, which was very frustrating. But um, the course for the swim is in like a bay area. Um, hopefully the water will be, you know, fine by, by Tokyo race day. Um, the bike is um, several laps. I forget how many. I'm pretty sure it's four of pretty technical of U-turns and 90 degrees. Um, turns and some rolling hills, but nothing substantial 
um, like a lot of climbing. And then the run is flat and technical with um, some U-turns and laps. And it's a sprint distance course, correct? So 750 meter swim, 20K bike, 5K run. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Okay. And Grace, a few weeks ago, we interviewed Taylor Nib, who just qualified for the U.S. Olympic triathlon team. And we made a big deal about her, or I made a big deal about her being only 23 <laughs> years old. And you are also 23 years old and Tokyo would be your second Olympics. So you were only 18 in Rio. And while, you know, we sometimes see teenage Olympians in sports like swimming and gymnastics, most paratriathletes and triathletes are older. So was age or experience even something you thought about back in Rio, Rio days? Uh, yeah, I mean, I obviously knew I was youngest competitor on the, um, that world stage that year. Um, but at that time, I was, you know, I just graduated high school. I was going into college. I was very confident in myself as an athlete, um, getting ready to start my collegiate track and cross-country running career. Um, and so I took all of that experience that I had racing in high school at a very high level and then going into college um, to help me. Um, but it really was a very fast transition from when I started triathlon to winning gold in Rio. Um, and I'm definitely... You know, Tokyo is going to be a much different experience for a lot of different reasons, but one of them is I, I am, you know, five years older. And, um, you know, the women are still, um, you know, five to ten years older than me, but it's I, I'm a little bit closer and, you know, um, I have more experience. I have more time to develop muscle and, um, and mature in that, that sense. Um, so I'm definitely excited to... Uh, take on the Paralympics again, you know, post-college, have a little bit more racing and experience under my belt. And you kind of mentioned in non-pandemic times, you travel all over the world competing on a wide variety of courses, but you do compete with a lot of the same athletes. So is there camaraderie among the athletes on the world paratri circuit? Uh, there definitely is, you know, um, in my category, we, I've raced, you know, some of these ladies for the past seven years that I've been involved in, um, you know, paratriathlon at this elite level. And so we kind of know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Um, we can kind of, you know, we show up on the day and the day can be different depending on, you know, who, who shows up for the race, you know, on that morning. But um, we all are all pretty good friends. Um, you know, there's, there's friendly competition. We try not to, you know, do anything that's going to severely bring anyone down or back um and we try not to you know trash talk each other which is pretty which is good we're all pretty nice on the start line which is um welcoming to me i'm not really a mean person when it comes to racing um but yeah i definitely have enjoyed getting to know these women and racing them for the past you know six seven years and when we look back at your race in Rio, you didn't go in as the favorite, but you had an incredible race. So you let out of the water and coming off the bike, um, you were right behind eventual silver medalist, Laura Stedman of Great Britain. So you really took command of that race on the run and you won the first ever paratriathlon gold medal. So, you know, have you, have you thought a lot about that race, like in visualization for this Olympics, kind of what comes to mind as you remember that, or is it like compartmentalized and that's, you know, that was Rio, Tokyo is going to be different. So you're like focusing on different stuff. How do you approach that? Well, I think, you know, each race goes into your experience level um, as an athlete and a performer 
Um, and so I definitely take from that race, you know, confidence and um, lessons I learned within each part of that race. Um, however, I was a very different person and athlete five years ago, um, where I was very focused on my running career um, through high school. And, you know, I was about to start college running, um, whereas now I'm able to be a professional athlete and focus solely on training and doing everything possible to make everything line up well. Um, so I'm able to put a little or actually a lot more focus on every aspect of the triathlon, not just running. Um, and I've really developed as a cyclist a lot more going into these games, which is where I've been lacking in the past few years. Um, so I try not to, you know, take from Rio and kind of project it onto Tokyo because they are extremely different experiences. Um, and especially just knowing myself from how I was then to where I am now, um, which is a, a very different athlete. Um, but I still, you know, take from that experience and um, hope to repeat again in Tokyo. What, what did that feel like running down that finish shoot? I think you had, you had like just under a minute lead. I mean, what did that feel like to win the first ever paratriathlon gold medal? You know, I, I don't think it really sunk in until, like, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't really realize that I had won that first female medal, you know. Um, to me, it was just, it was, it was gold. I was extremely ecstatic because I'd, I had never beat um, the woman, the Brit from, um, who played second. Uh, I had never beaten her before. And so to take that gold medal at, on the biggest stage, um, like that was how the time to do it, right? <laughs> so um, it was just a phenomenal feeling of, uh, I mean, it was really hot. So I was really tired. <laughs> but um, to be able to finish knowing that I had run the the race of my life and it, it paid out and it was just such a, a wonderful experience um, just to cross that finish line knowing that it, it was all worth it, you know? And in Rio, you, you kind of mentioned your running prowess. And so you, you did compete on the track in Rio as well in the 400 meters and you won a bronze medal. And so if I have my timeline right, it was like Sunday, September 11th, 2016, you won a paratriathlon gold medal and your time in that race was one hour, 10 minutes and 39 seconds. And then you turned around on Monday, September 12th, just one day later, and you won a bronze medal by running 400 meters in one minute and one second. So quite the range there. How did you physically and mentally handle two drastically different events on back-to-back -back days on, as you said, the world's biggest stage? Yeah, that was, um, that was a bit crazy. I was one of, um, I think one of, only one of two athletes that decided to double sport uh, in the Paralympic Games. Um, and, you know, leading into the Paralympic Games, like trying to double the, you know, track and field and triathlon training, you know, it was running, running kind of goes with running, you know, but I have to worry about, you know, starting and being able to sprint and, and in the triathlon, you don't come out of blocks, you know, you don't, you know, on a track. And so it was a lot different trying to balance those two training um, schedules. And, you know, whenever I saw the, the end, um, like the final schedule for the Paralympics and saw that the triathlon was on Sunday and the track and field event was on Monday, I was like, oh boy, <laughs> okay. Um, because I, you know, gave everything I had in that triathlon event and had to wake up 
Monday morning and somehow figure out how to make my body be able to run as fast as possible around that track once. <laughs> um, and so it just took a lot of warm up. I you know, spent a lot of time that day um, rehydrating and um, staying off my feet. And then uh, when it was time, you know, doing a solid warm up. Um, and then honestly, it was just the crowds of that 400 meter stadium. It was, there's something different when you step into a stadium, especially as like a track runner. Um, it's just, you know, energy just comes from everywhere. Um, and I think being on that level was just so exhilarating to me that I didn't even think about, you know, how painful it was. <laughs> um, and it, I really don't remember feeling much pain until the final 100 meters when, you know, everything kind of locks up in a 400 meter run. Um, but I also was realizing that, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double medal um, at this Games. And it was um, just the icing on the cake. I couldn't be more happy. I set um, an American record. I believe I still hold it um, in the 400 meter, and that's still my fastest to date, which is insane that I was able to do that after a triathlon event the day before. <laughs> I can't imagine. I feel like the, like, you know, I would have had, like, the angel and the devil on my shoulders being like, it's time to celebrate. Like, no, you still have one more event to run tomorrow, you know? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been, that would have been tough, but I know you went in there knowing that was going to be the case. So I guess that helps when you approach it from the beginning like that. And Grace, in 2016, you were a freshman at Cedarville University in Ohio, where you competed in track and cross country. So you couldn't accept sponsorship without losing your NCAA eligibility. And in the time since, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee has announced that all U.S. Olympians and Paralympians will receive the same prize money for medals. And just last month, Toyota announced a $5 million commitment to support athletes training for the Paralympics with $3,000 stipends, as well as sponsorship opportunities for those who make the team. So a lot of great things coming to the athletes here. And how does this news make you feel about your future as a professional athlete? You know, it's, it's really encouraging. Um, it was, I didn't understand the depth of difference back when I was 18 years old and winning gold medal. Um, but in 2016, the price of a, like the value of a gold medal for Olympics was 37,000. The value of a gold medal in the Paralympics was 7,000. Um, and so there was a huge discrepancy between Olympians and Paralympians. Um, but the word Paralympics means parallel to the Olympics. Um, so as Paralympic athletes, we are all equal and seen equal as Olympic athletes. We run parallel to them. Um, and so to see they, these sponsors come on board and, um, you know, the equal medal money for the games is just super encouraging just to see a bigger step towards equality for um, Paralympians and Olympians together. And can you tell us about some of your sponsors? Are there any you would like to shout out here? Uh, yeah, no, I, um, it was slow coming because I, I, you know, graduated college during the pandemic and got my senior track season taken away and so I was like okay I can I guess start accepting sponsors now um I signed with an agency that has been uh super great they're called human interest group um and they've been um they've had my back through through COVID and working towards the Paralympics to get as many sponsors as possible um so currently I have um Shimano and Stages backing me on the bike um and I have Oser uh prosthetics for my different prosthetics 
And then I have um, USA Triathlon Foundation helping me along the way as well. So I have got some very strong sponsors backing me to these games, and it's been super encouraging to see that come together. And Grace, I think you recently moved to South Bend, Indiana, specifically to train for Tokyo. So how is the training in South Bend? You know, it's really good. Um, Prior to South Bend, I was living in Florida, um, pretty much by myself. And so it's been really nice being uh, with my coach. My coach is from South Bend, Greg Mueller. Um, And so I'm able to train with his group and get just a lot of, uh, I guess, social interaction whenever, you know, triathlon can be a, a kind of a um, isolating sport. And so it's been super nice to have a team to train with um, and just have my coach there daily to, to see in person and talk with and hash out details so we make sure no stone is unturned. And are, do you do any simulations of the course conditions or the challenges of the course that you might face in Tokyo, like from Indiana? Yeah, so currently um, we are aware that it's going to be very hot and humid in Tokyo. Um, so we are doing a lot of heat prep through um, sauna work, actually. Uh, we have sauna sessions, um, either post or pre-workouts, where we will either sit fully clothed or, you know, after a swim in a, in a swimsuit, um, taking in, like, room temperature water so we're not cooling the core, um, trying to progress my... Um, ability to handle the heat um, faster. And so, and then also during rides on like a sunny day, I'll wear like a jacket or a coat, um, shower cap over my helmet to uh, have my head heat up. Um, So it's kind of, um, it can be miserable at times, but I know that the more I um, practice with it, the better I'll be on race day. I'm like literally speechless thinking about <laughs> putting a shower cap on my helmet to, to make myself hotter. That sounds like, yeah, that is definitely going to make you tougher. And um, I think, you know, with the heat and humidity you could be facing, I, you'll be grateful for it, I'm sure. But you are paying your dues. So, <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I mean, definitely the shower cap is making me hotter in, in temperature, not attractiveness when I'm on the bike. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, I guess triathletes aren't really known for being like super cool with our gear and everything like that. So what's a shower cap <laughs> on top of the helmet at the end of the day? Right. You know, it, it'll work. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and Grace, it's our understanding that the Tokyo Paralympics won't offer the 400 meter track event for athletes in your category. But given your history, do you still have standalone running goals or are you at this point all in on triathlon? Um, currently, at least through this um, cycle, so a few more months through the Paralympics, I am fully focused on triathlon. Um, I, you know, I am a first runner at heart, you know, and so, like, I, I don't like the fact that I, um, you know, missed some of my running career in college due to COVID and, you know, just don't have that ability to compete again in the Paralympics in a, a running event. Um, but I think right now a sole focus is going to help me be better um, prepared and better mentally focused for um, what I will have to do in the Paralympics and the triathlon. Um, Post-Tokyo, I would like to race some track events at some para um, or just invitationals to set some world records um, because the Paralympics is funny where, you know, they don't have every category for every disability sport, but 
you're still allowed to um, hold world records and set them um, as long as you, you know, get them um, everything, you know, official and stuff like that. So I do have some goals in breaking the the 5K, basically just breaking my own records, but I they were not um, as quick as I would have liked them to be during the races that were um, officiated for those. So that, those are definitely on the horizon in the next, you know, 10 years or so, hopefully. Yeah, that's right. Because you are only 23. You have so much time, so much of a career. You've already accomplished so much. You have so much time ahead of you. Grace, thank you so much for taking time out of your layover on your way home from Leeds. Congratulations again on that race. We're going to look forward to watching you race in, in Wisconsin in a couple of weeks and in Tokyo, you know, just a, like a month and a half away. I mean, it's so, it's coming up so quick. So thank you again and, and good, happy recovery. Good luck with your training. Thank you so much. The Iron Women Podcast wants to give a huge shout out to Orca Sportswear for their continued support in 2021. As someone who isn't a natural born swimmer, my choices for swim gear are super important. Orca has me ready to battle for every second I need in the water with the open water, triathlon, and swim run wetsuits. They also have safety buoys, goggles, cold water caps, and booties. You name it, they have it. The code IRONWOMEN15 will get you 15% off, so head to orca.com today and let's get ready to swim in 2021. Big thanks to Grace for giving us a little insight into her, her life as a Paralympian and, you know, this road to the Tokyo Paralympics. I'm excited to watch. Uh, many of our listeners will remember we've also interviewed a few of the Rio medalists in the PTS2 category. Uh, Alyssa Seeley, Haley Dance, and Melissa Stockwell, they swept that category in Rio. And again, we'll hear... We'll hear the announcement of who makes the team uh, in a couple weeks here, early July. And then those Paralympic Games are happening in August. The triathlon, the paratriathlon events, I believe are happening Saturday and Sunday, August 28th and 29th. So mark your calendars, plan a little like viewing party. I mean, I think this is what we need right now is just to cheer on these athletes as they compete in Tokyo. So best of luck to, to Grace and thanks again for coming on the show. Super exciting, Haley. And Haley, it was so good to chat with you again, be back to our regularly scheduled programming. And I'm sure I missed a lot in the adventure racing recap, but the moral of the story is everyone should try an adventure race. Um, they're super fun. Just maybe not four weeks out from your Ironman, but maybe, you know, do it. Maybe and then it's see a it. secret. I know. <laughs> We're just, you know, seeing how it goes and uh, yeah, keeping people updated. But um, if you are listening, feel free to always leave a review um, on your podcast app of choice for us. That does really help us. So we appreciate when you do that and we haven't asked you to do it in a while. So um, yeah, give us a rating and let everyone else know on the internet that you are listening and loving it. Bye, Alyssa. Keep recovering well, and I'll see you next week. You have been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Live Feisty Media and is edited by Lindsay Glassford. Thank you to our sponsors, Noon Hydration, Prevenix, Zelio Skincare, Form Swim Goggles, and Orca Sportswear. You can find all websites and discount codes in our show notes at ironwomenpodcast.com.